There is no greater liberation in this world than when Jesus captures a soul and makes it his slave. And there can hardly be greater folly in this world than to think that Jesus ever captures a soul unwittingly or without purpose. The Bible reveals that our risen and reigning Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in the business of capturing the hearts of sinners and purposefully fitting them for His service. This is Jesus' joy. This is Jesus' work. This is His purpose in this world. And we rejoice in that today. And we sing because of it. And how gloriously Jesus' sovereign purposes and salvation are displayed when on occasion He captures the soul of a most unlikely sinner. Now, I stop there and say, of course, every one of us is a most unlikely sinner. It takes the wonder of God's grace to save anyone. But we know those stories of unusual rescue. And we rejoice in them. January 19, 1897, the story is often told. Mel Trotter was drunk. He was bitter. He was despondent. An alcoholic since his teenage years, Trotter had fallen so low that he abandoned his young wife at the death of their two-year-old child, left her to seek his own self-centered ways. He went to the city of Chicago and there fell so low that he actually sold his own shoes for drink. Wearing hardly any clothes, barefooted, In the middle of the frigid January night, he stumbled toward the icy waters of Lake Michigan, planning there on this night, January 19th, to end his life. His route took him past the front door of the Pacific Garden Mission in Chicago. On his way to commit suicide, a hopeless drunk The doorman invited him in. He came in and slouched down on the seat and listened to the testimony of a converted alcoholic named Harry Monroe, and Trotter's soul was captured by Jesus Christ that night. He did not commit suicide and enter into a Christless eternity, but that night, entirely unplanned to no one's expectation, Jesus Christ reached down and captured Mel Trotter's heart. Just three years later, this man was the director of a mission in Grand Rapids, Michigan, serving Jesus as a trusted itinerant preacher. And may I submit to you that while people were stunned by Mel Trotter's conversion, Jesus was neither surprised nor was he left scrambling to come up with an idea of what on earth to do with Mel Trotter. Our risen and reigning Savior actively captures the hearts of sinners and He purposefully, strategically fits each one of them for His service. And perhaps nowhere is there a more dramatic evidence of these realities than in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So we think back on Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, this theme verse, Jesus says to His disciples, You will be My witnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria. We've been witnessing that in the text of Acts as we come to chapter 9 today, if you'll make your way there. But we've been witnessing Philip as he goes into Samaria and reaches Samaritans for Christ. Peter and John coming to confirm the work and to carry on the same mission among the Samarians. Then we see Philip going down south of Jerusalem 
and reaching out there to the Ethiopian eunuch who receives Christ as Savior again, a man captured. Didn't know who Christ was, but he responds in faith. And then as Philip works his way up on the Mediterranean coast, up towards Caesarea, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now we have come to the place in the book of Acts where the work will begin to spread out to the Gentiles. The message will go out to them of salvation in Christ And the book is set there, but now necessitates an apostle to the Gentiles. An individual who will lead this charge. Well, who are you going to say might be the person to lead the charge? Well, certainly Peter would be a possibility. Or Philip. Look at the success that Philip has had in proclaiming Christ in this region. And to those who are on the fringes of the Jewish faith. I can tell you one person that wasn't on the list for anybody was Saul of Tarsus. He just didn't make the cut. That is not the man you would think would be the one to lead the Gentile mission. Chapter 8 and verse 3, do you remember this? Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. That's who Saul is. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is what Saul is doing as we look at this conversion account, and we're very familiar with it, but as we work our way through it, We see again God's redeeming purposes, and so often in ways that we would never expect. Saul approaching the high priest, probably Caiaphas, perhaps his son Annas, we're not sure, but he asked for official approval to extradite Christians from Damascus and to present them in Jerusalem. Damascus is about one week away by travel, nearly 150 miles north-northeast of Jerusalem, Saul's strategy appears to be to go to the fringes of where this message has spread and to work his way back. To stomp it out at the edges like a fire. If we can contain it at the fringes, perhaps we can put it out. And so he goes all the way to Damascus to crush the way, as it's called here. Probably drawing from Jesus' teaching to his disciples. There's a broad way that leads to destruction. There is a narrow way that leads to life. These are people of the way. They're people who have followed the call of Christ. And Saul says, I want to bring them to an end. Certainly, I think on his part, he believes he's serving God with all his heart. There are sinners who are drunks. There are sinners who are caught in the web of some sin that holds them down and a whole web of sins that hold them down. For Saul, his sin was his zeal for God. Twisted, confused, mistaken. He believed that he operated in the spirit of Phineas, willing to do anything to stop those who were rebelling against Yahweh. That's what he thought. Verse 3, as we continue... As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. The Greek text, coupled with the parallel accounts in chapter 22 and 26, indicate that this was a brilliant light. 
brighter than the sun. It lighted the area where Paul or Saul stood. We'll call him that. Uh, this blinding, otherworldly light fills Saul with dread fear. And verses 4 and 5 are crucial to this account. We read, and falling to the ground, certainly in fear, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now Saul saying here, who are you, Lord? It's a fairly generic word, but I think he realizes this is a supernatural presence. Some have said he's just saying, who are you, sir? Well, sirs don't shine on you with a bright light from heaven and speak out of heaven. So he knows that there's some angelic being here possibly or God himself speaking to you. He just speaks what he can figure out here in the moment. And as one has said, an impulsive recognition of the glorified Christ perhaps. But that's all settled real quickly when Jesus responds, I am Jesus. And that's the whole issue. I am Jesus. We cannot make Jesus into who we want him to be. He is Jesus, and it is we who need to do all of the adjusting. This is something Saul was going to have to learn, and learn in a very quick fashion, in a dramatic way. Saul must immediately come to terms with some very sobering realities. First of all, the most obvious, Jesus of Nazareth is alive. He cheered him dead and knew that he had been executed in Jerusalem where he frequented. And so he knew that Jesus was dead. He didn't know that he was alive. He's having to filter all of that as he hears this. I am Jesus. The man the Jewish authorities had executed for blasphemy against God was alive in resurrected form. He possessed clearly God's approval. The second thing Saul had to come to terms with here immediately was that the Messianic age was no longer a purely future consideration. In some sense of the term, it had dawned. The Messiah had come. The Messiah was alive again. And thirdly, Saul's persecution of the church had been directed against the risen Christ. This certainly comes to his mind as well. Simply said, and as Gamaliel put it in chapter 5, Saul's zeal was directly opposing God. He thought he was serving God. But he opposed him. So while Saul has not grasped this yet, I don't think, the theology of it, Jesus so identifies with his people that Saul has actually been inflicting pain on Jesus. As Augustine put it, the head in heaven cries out on behalf of the members on earth. Jesus Christ, our living head, when we suffer, suffers too. All attacks against his people, all persecution, all martyrdom is against Christ himself. Our Savior weeps with his suffering church. You are persecuting me. Again, while the body of Christ has not yet been fleshed out theologically at this point in time, the concept is implicit here. As Jesus identifies with his people, any attack on them is an attack on him. 
And really, even this man who in his great zeal believes that he is serving God is attacking Christ. He is doing so actually, but so it is with anyone who has not yielded to the Lordship of Christ and seen Him as Savior, as Lord. And if that is you this morning, you must be born again by Jesus. Perhaps you find yourself in some different stage of place than Mel Trotter consumed by alcohol, or Saul of Tarsus consumed by this misguided zeal. But every one of us must come to terms that we must be born again by Jesus Christ. It may not be as dramatic a conversion, and certainly we should not wait around for something like that to happen. But it is the case That Jesus is not going to plead to us to yield our heart to Him so that our life will get better. Jesus is not luring Saul here to a decision with promises of greater purpose and meaning in his life. That, of course, will follow. But Jesus confronts Paul's rebellion demanding that Saul get on Jesus' page. And that is really the call to every unbeliever. Jesus is the issue. We adjust to Him. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the coming Savior. The only name by which we must be saved. This is who Jesus is. And if you have not come to know Him in this way, you need to change. You need to repent. You will not have the experience that Saul has like this in this setting. But the same Repentant change must take place. Jesus continues in verse 6, Having saved Paul, having rescued him and showed him who he is, he has a purpose for him. Verse 6, But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. doesn't seem that Jesus really has a plan here for Saul to go on and live life however he chooses to live it, does it? I've got a job for you to do. Go in to the city And wait for me. Think of the dramatic change that takes place here. Whether it's a man walking to commit suicide who finds Christ, as Christ captures his heart, or if it's this Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to run his own show, Jesus has radically reworked the agenda. You're going to go into Damascus, but you are now going to be my servant. From now on, Saul will gladly serve Jesus' beck and call as his Lord. Verse 7, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. From the parallel accounts, we learn, chapter 26, that these men heard the sound of Jesus' voice, but Saul alone understood the words. They fell too to the ground, these probably Jewish soldiers. Obviously, Saul is not going to single-handedly bind and transport believers over a week's travel back to Jerusalem. He would have come with soldiers. They knew something happened, but they didn't hear the message. They didn't hear the words of Christ. Now they take him by the hand. In verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So here he is, sitting in physical blindness for three days while his spiritual vision is clarified. This encounter with the risen Christ so shook Saul, he did not eat or drink for three days. Perhaps he set it aside willingly. But with this blindness, with this 
sense of what he has been doing, how he has been rebelling against Christ, putting together in his mind all that the scriptures are teaching, has a lot to learn yet at this point, but I'm sure that he's beginning to put it together. He doesn't even bother with food or water for three days. His mind undistracted by visual stimuli as he prays and rethinks his worldview. Saul is converted. He has been captured by Christ, we learn in these first nine verses. Then as we come to verse 10, we find Saul is ministered to by Ananias. And there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias, that would be you, come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. A straight street can be found today in Damascus, and it was a very prominent street. He knew exactly where it was. He was going to have to find a map or ask around for this little trail off somebody's backyard. He knew where Straight Street was. It was 50 feet wide. It had colonnades on both sides, and it had massive gates on either end of the street. Somewhere on this street lived a man by the name of Judas. We know nothing else of him. And he is to go to this house where Saul of Tarsus is praying. Well, Ananias is a good man. He has a willing heart of service to the Lord. But what Jesus has commissioned him to do sounds, frankly, insane. And he says, verse 13, as he responds, he answers, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on his name. Kind of curious sociological point, doesn't mean a lot to us, but isn't it interesting? He knows Saul's coming. It's taken a week for him to get here. He's gotten papers from uh, the high priest, and he's coming with soldiers, and word gets here ahead of him. Apparently there's some network of Christians, remember there's no telephone or internet or any way to communicate other than just physically moving the message from Jerusalem to Damascus and it precedes Saul. The Christians are nervous. They know Saul's coming and they know his reputation. But back to his questioning of God. When our hearts are pure, God usually treats us with extraordinary grace when we inform him of how things are. God, did you miss this memo somewhere? You know who this guy is? Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, and I think we understand that Ananias is not speaking in an unfaithful way to the Lord. He's simply confused. The Lord says to him in grace, Go, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What we must grasp here is God's sovereign electing purposes for Saul. Jesus has chosen Saul as an instrument to carry the Lord's name to Gentiles and Israelites alike. 
He's mine. He has captured this man who has been capturing believers, set him free from idolatry to join the ranks of the persecuted followers of Jesus. Yes, Ananias, he was a persecutor. Now he's joining those who suffer in my name. He's one of us. And church historians report that the Apostle Paul will die by execution at the hands of Emperor Nero some 25 years later. He will suffer the ultimate penalty for standing for Christ in a fallen world. He will be the apostle to the Gentiles, and that's the significance of this text. Jesus calls Paul to head up a new initiative in salvation history. Since the call of Abraham, God has been working his saving purposes through a chosen family. Now the salvation program goes global. It's moved into Samaria, and that's messing with some categories. It's reached a eunuch who was up worshiping in Jerusalem. That's messing with some categories. But now he's going to move the mission into the Gentile world, and this man is going to head up that mission. He's the apostle to the Gentiles, so to speak. This salvation program going global. Now, this, let's notice again, we can skip through this and miss this entirely. This isn't Saul's idea, is it? Saul's there in the dark in Judas' house for three days, and he's saying, I think I've got an idea here of how to advance the message of Jesus. I'll, I'll take it to the Gentiles. Nor has Saul sent in his resume to Jesus for missionary service. And Jesus is saying, boy, I really ought to use this guy. He's got some things going here. He's convincing me this might work. This is a supernatural directive, isn't it? Saul has been captured by Jesus and liberated from his sin in order to serve Jesus' cause. Some of you probably differ with me on this point. But I don't believe Jesus ever saves anybody any differently. We sing this song, Jesus, I did not choose you. Now we understand in one sense that's not true. There's a sense in which we choose Christ on some level. But in the ultimate sense, we sing that. Would Saul sing this song? Jesus, I did not choose you for that could never be. If it was left to me, I would still refuse you. He had no interest in Jesus Christ. He wanted to bring his followers to an untimely death. But then we say, well, yes, but this is Saul of Tarsus. This is the Apostle Paul, and when Jesus chooses him for salvation, this is unique. This isn't something that God always does. Generally, most of us common Christians choose Christ. Christ once in a while reaches down and chooses special people. I know none of us would say this, but one thing the reigning Christ never says when a sinner trusts him as Savior is, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. What am I going to do with this person now? Well, most of the jobs are filled and I, I don't really know where to put them. I, I just didn't see this one coming. Jesus doesn't ever say that. Are you saved? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? There is the witness of the Spirit of God. There is the fruit of the Spirit of God working in your life to bring evidence to the fact that, yes, I know that I've trusted Christ as my Savior. Listen to me. If that is you, Jesus saved you for a specific purpose. 
He didn't save you because you have a great plan. He didn't save you because he said, wow, now there's a gifted person. And I can't tell you all of the specifics as to why he saved you. Only the generalities. What we know generally, however, is that what God is doing here with Saul of Tarsus is what God does whenever he saves someone. Jesus saved you to redeem you from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He has chosen you to be a part of his body as the head, working through his members in this world, using the gifts that he gives by his spirit and using the circumstances that surround you for his glory and for his honor. He doesn't save people to stuff a ticket in their back pocket and slap them on the back and go, I'm glad that you chose me. I'll see you in heaven. He gives us his saving grace to use us for his glory here, to use you for his glory here. As Christ's servant, Ananias honors his Lord's command. Think of it. He knows who this Saul is. Very likely has a family, at least some friends and some other Christians that he loves, and he'd like to see him again. And going to visit Saul of Tarsus isn't the best way to guarantee the rest of your day. But Jesus says, go. And he goes. If this is how Jesus sees the man, this is how I must see the man. More on that in a moment. But notice what happens in verse 17. So Ananias departed. He obeyed Christ. He entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm sure he's earnest here, but I wonder if there isn't a little bit of humor in here. You know the one that appeared to you on the road? I'm I'm just coming in his name. That one. I'm coming here to lay my hands on you so that you can regain your sight. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Did you hear what he said? We can miss that word so easily. He said, brother Saul. Brother Saul. Amazing. He's in the family. Saul had caused untold damage to Ananias' brothers and sisters in Christ. We've read of that in verse 13. Ananias knows this. Lord, I've heard from many about this man and how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. But if Jesus has changed his mind about Saul of Tarsus, Ananias is going to side with Christ. Brother Saul. What lies in the soul of Ananias here. I think we can do a little work without over-psychologizing it. I think there's some theological themes here that lie at the heart of who this man is and what he's come to understand. Calling Saul brother in this moment demands that Ananias have a sense of forgiveness. He knows what forgiveness is. Of all people on the planet, Christians should know how to forgive sinners. Ananias has forgiven Saul of Tarsus because Jesus has. 
There's reconciliation there. Here's this one, my enemy. But now my enemy is my brother. All that he's done. What about all that he's done? What about this rap sheet that Saul of Tarsus has? Are we just going to forget about all the people that he's harmed? Forget about it? Maybe, maybe not. But what we're going to do is cover it in grace. Because Jesus has. Reconciliation. There certainly is at the heart of Ananias' thinking a sense of the lordship of Jesus and the priority of the gospel. It's not what happened to his friends. It's not what's happened here in the past. It's what Jesus is doing and the advance of this gospel. Saul, you're my brother in Christ now. Brother Saul, receive your sight. Receive the Holy Spirit. One has referred to this as a Pauline Pentecost. This unique coming of the Spirit to evidence that he is indeed a child of God. And immediately, verse 18, something like scales fell from his eyes. No idea what that means. No one has any idea what that means. Perhaps connected to the bright light that he saw, but some type of scales fall from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. That we do understand. With all new followers of Jesus, there is to be an identification with the death and resurrection of Christ in the waters of baptism. He has responded to Jesus. He knows that he is Lord. He's been rescued by Christ from his zealous but godless ways. And he has placed faith, repentant faith in Jesus. He stands to identify with him in the waters of baptism. This is amazing grace. This is amazing grace. He's no better off than a man who's a drunk on his way to fall into an icy lake and drowned. He's just doing something different. He's seeking to crush Christ, seeking to capture his followers, and Jesus captures him. He's baptized. He takes food. He's strengthened. And for days he's with the disciples at Damascus and begins proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Amazing grace. You know, as we look at this account, we know it well. It's familiar to us. It should be familiar to us. In fact, Luke is laboring to make sure we don't ever forget about this day. Because there are two other times that Luke takes the space to record the account of Saul's conversion. He doesn't have to do that, but in in chapter 22, he could have just said that that Paul was explaining how he was saved and he gave the, the account of his salvation or something. But in chapter 22 and chapter 26, he repeats the narrative here in some sense. Different wording, different take on it, but three times in one book. That is a literary device to show the utter importance of this event. With those three references, anybody that understood the literature of that day would say this is extremely important. Let's hear from Paul himself. 1 Timothy chapter 1. As he thinks back on these events, he says in verse 13 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Formerly, there was a time once upon a time, 1 Timothy 1.13, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. That's who I was. But 
I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. I think that simply means I didn't do so raising my fist in the face of God and blaspheme the Spirit of God such that there was no hope for repentance. I didn't do that. I zealously thought I was serving God. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Maybe in some respects because of His willingness to attack the church but certainly in the sense that he just knows his own heart better than anyone else does. He's the foremost of sinners. But, verse 16, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He's still, these many years later, overwhelmed with the grace of God in his life, that Jesus would choose him as the chief of sinners to carry the message to the Gentiles. And it says to us, doesn't it, Christian, let's remember it, no one is beyond the saving power of Christ. No one. How quickly we are to say of some people, indeed in our culture it's common, to say there's people, they've got all the pieces. They know the truths of the Bible and they hold them. They're not converted. They've never been born again. But they know all the facts. It's impossible. You can't get through that fog. Or we might look at someone who's caught in the web of sin and say it's utterly hopeless. No one is hopeless because the power of God is greater than anyone who is separated from Christ. May we never forget it. God can break through any fog, and may we be a church that prays for those who are lost and bound in sin, knowing and confident that Christ can save anyone. No sinner beyond the power of God's saving grace. But let me say this also, and let's take it to heart again. When God saves us, He does so for a specific purpose. That He would transform us into the likeness of Christ and that He would use us to carry forward His work in this waking world. He's chosen you for a purpose. Yes, on some level, we choose Him. We respond in faith to the offer of salvation that is in Christ. We receive the gift. But in the larger sense of the term, the direction that it moves in Scripture is that He has chosen us. Are you with me there? I don't think Saul of Tarsus is some unique case. That with all other normal believers, Jesus doesn't choose us. We choose Him. I think He chooses us all for a reason. That's point one. The second is, are you with me? I don't believe He ever gives salvation to anyone for no reason. Or just to give them a ticket to heaven. What He's doing here with Saul reflects His nature and His purposes in salvation. He saved you, believer. 
for a reason. Now, I'm telling you, that reason isn't so that you could be apostle to the Gentiles, right? Or the greatest theologian in church history. He chooses weak, common people. But he chooses them for a reason. If you don't know Christ as Savior, there's only one thing that this message can deliver to you, and that's that you must come to him in faith today. Trust his saving grace, his mercy. Rejoice with Saul of Tarsus, who speaks of the mercy and the grace of God in giving to a sinner forgiveness and salvation. Trust him. But if you know Christ as Savior, let's stop and say this isn't just about Saul of Tarsus, and it is about him. How significant he is in the story of salvation. How important it is for us to know of his conversion and how he will become the apostle to the Gentiles. But listen, Jesus saved us with purpose as well. Different purposes. Smaller, perhaps, in comparison. Not, I'll even take out the perhaps there. Just smaller in comparison, certainly. But with distinct purpose. He did not save you to wallow in your sin. He didn't save you to just live a mundane life like all the people around you, just simply getting from week to week, passing on life, chasing off your moments of entertainment, following them, trying to get money to stay alive, just dealing with life, just doing the things that everybody else around you is doing. That's not why He saved us. And we've got to do things that everyone else around is doing. We do have to make a living, and it's okay to take a break now and then. We live in many respects like the people around us. We are also saved to live in many respects unlike anybody around us. He saved us, captured our souls to transform us and to use us as His servants to proclaim His glories in this world as a member of His body. As He sends out Saul into this world to proclaim to Gentiles the message of Christ, so He has rescued you to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. This is His purpose for all of us. Are we realizing that purpose? We don't come to Jesus in order to have purpose. We come to Jesus because He's Jesus. We yield to His Lordship. We acknowledge His sovereign reign. We receive Him as our Savior because we have no other hope. But having come to Him, He gives us a purpose. To live in this world for His glory, for His honor, and to say from now on, when He says go, I go. When He says that I have a job for you to do, we do it. Joyfully, Thankfully, with a full sense of his grace and his mercy to us in salvation, how rich we are. Let's bow for prayer. Indeed, Father, how rich we are. There may well be some among us who cannot say that Christ has captured my soul. I pray, God, that you would help them to see the reality of that. How delusional was Saul of Tarsus. How earnestly, sincerely 
wrong he was. There may be some in this congregation today who are equally delusional. Thinking that they are on your side and they're actually living against your purposes. I pray for their rescue. I plead that you'd open their eyes to see that's me. And I need to be saved by Christ. For those of us who know you, Father, with all of our heart and soul, we bow before you and we plead and we ask. Use us for the purpose for which you've called us. It may seem small in comparison with others. It doesn't look like anyone else entirely. But I pray that we would respond to the gifts that you give, to the opportunities that you present to us, to the circumstances that surround our lives, and that we would, with joy and gladness, would go into this world seeking to be your representative, to be faithful to our calling, and to know I have a reason to live. That reason isn't me. It's Jesus. May we live for his glory and for his honor. In his name we pray. Amen.